Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Here Matthew chapter 22, maybe put a ribbon here and turn over uh, in Romans as well, the epistle to the Romans. In a moment we'll be addressing just a few verses out of there. This is, of course, by date of calendar, the Independence Day preceding July the 4th. I asked a, went to college with a Canadian, and uh, he, uh, obviously we weren't in college session during the month of July uh, most times, and I said to him once, I said, hey, uh, uh, does Canada celebrate 4th of July? He said, oh, of course not. Why would you ask that? Only an American would ask a stupid question like that. No, no Canadian celebrates 4th of July. And I said, they don't recognize 4th of July? He goes, no, we don't recognize 4th of July. And I said, what do you do? Just go 1st, July 1, July 2, July 3, July 5, July 6? Anyway, it was a pathetic joke. I'll write that one out the book. But anyway, Independence Day. You know, in many regards, there would be some Christians that would consider this and this type of service improper. They would put a, or attempt to put a barricade between the government or any positive mentions of any government and worship of the Almighty God. And I think there are some reasons that could be pointed at. But in Matthew 22, as we just read a moment ago, I would note the words of the Lord when they attempted to beguile and entangle him. He mentions a singular phrase, Render therefore unto Caesars the things that are Caesars. Now if there's one thing in life that I could be thankful for, it's the fact that this is metaphorical, not literal. What do you mean? There are no more Caesars left today. I've never in all of my born days wished to have lived under imperial Caesar rule. In fact, I know that no form of government in and of itself really has uh, the ability to say it is perfect. Our republic that we have has her own imperfections. For instance, its glaring imperfection is that your political and my political leaders that we have, especially at the federal level, are to a real extent a direct reflection to the populace that voted for them. That's the reality of it is. And that's unlike a true monarchy. A true monarchy is interesting, but it's, it's a little risky, really. A true monarchy can have a sole individual leader who may appoint judges that they could overturn. Uh, a true monarchy is really, in a great sense, the one that makes the law, signs the law, and executes the law, and judges whether or not he should have made the law in the first place. The problem is, in a monarchy, it can be greatly distinct, the attitudes and personalities of the people and who the king is. What do you mean by that? Well, historically, in the grand monarchs of days gone by, you could have a kingdom that was radical, but yet a good king. But that is so rarely the case. Most often the case is that you had a people as a whole that lived under a king 
that live for himself. And in that vein, almost always, that king was an evil king. And the people, at one extent or another, would grow in great disdain towards him. I think probably if you were to look at the reign of England, King Charles Charles II, who was, I believe, the grandson of James I, to whom uh, the publication of the King James Bible was named for. Uh, But Charles II was, uh, he believed in the divine right of kings. And so it mattered not what the will of people were or what the conscience of people were. It rather made a great distinction of what he wanted and when he wanted in life. And of course, history would remind us that after a series of what they refer to as the British Civil War, at the conclusion by which the forces under Cromwell were victorious, uh, Charles II was unceremoniously executed. See, I don't think that I really, as I survey and peruse history, could really say that I would want to risk my civil well-being being under a true monarch. I think you would have to look over human history and look at the people's ability to keep a good government is a more reliable barometer than that of someone that gained the reins of government by simple birth. And so in the coming weeks and months, as you hear of the seemingly uh, difficult divide in our country and unprecedented seems to be the only descriptive word whereby which our country can be described, you note in your form and your mind that it's likely the best type of government that the world truly could ever experience. And it is to that type government, Caesar is a type in 21, in verse 21, to which we are to render therefore unto them. In Romans chapter 13, and we'll come back here, but just just look here for a minute. Romans chapter 13, and note verse 7. He gives you some of those things that belong to Caesar. Now when the Lord Jesus is speaking in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, and interestingly when Paul is writing under inspiration in the 13th chapter, And later, if we were to take time, and we will not, but if you were to take note at 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, they're talking about the Caesars who were similar to an unparalleled monarch. Theoretically, they could be removed from office. Theoretically, they could abdicate their office. But they had great, wonderful... uh, Uh, influence, maybe wonderful is not the best word to describe it, they had great influence in their society because of their realm. They were not innocent people. In fact, when Peter writes, he is speaking of Nero, and I do not think that world history could remember one positive, one solitary, one singular wonderful thing about Nero. Take that back. Perhaps they could say he could play the violin. But I think that would discredit violinists. He was not a well-liked guy. And that would be the overarching doom of all of the Roman Empire is the inconsistency and the continual deviance and depravity that would follow suit of that grand empire. But it was to that empire and to her inconsistent Caesars that are not mentioned by name in these texts to which Jesus Christ says, render unto them the things that are due them. In Romans chapter 13, note if you will in verse 7, Paul is going to highlight some things that are due unto them. 
He says, render therefore to all their dues. That's their obligations. The things that are owed to them. Well, what things? He says, tribute. Tribute, it has the idea of a tax. Particularly a toll on travel or goods. If you might write in your Bible, you write right by that these words, sales tax. Income tax. I believe a politician, that must truly be the first word they learn how to spell, tax. It's prophesied, if you'll remember, all the way back by Samuel. One of the reasons, theologically, biblically, led by the Holy Spirit of God, one of the reasons that Samuel, one of his articulate pieces of sound divine logic, Samuel stood up, that old saintly man of God, to preach to the Jews, to warn them not to have a king, he highlighted what a king's going to do. He's going to take, 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 take. You don't want to do that. You see, Israel, Jehovah God is your king. And he taketh not from thee, but rather giveth and giveth and giveth and giveth and giveth. But despite all of his wonderful gifts, seemingly you are disgusted by his wonderful presence and choose rather the aperture of man, which in its end will only be selfish. Tribute. Another one he mentions here is custom. Custom, if you're writing, that's a special tax levy. It's something that's limited in one regard. That might be your one-time tax that you pay. Another one that he mentions that's due him in verse 7 is fear. This is an interesting one, because I thought throughout scriptures, I think the, the doctrine of things that one should fear is something so misunderstood. Sometimes folks walk around and get the idea that they don't need to have fear of authority. I think that ought to be something that is taught early in the life of a child, is the fear of authority. I think any parent that scoffs off authority will do so at the detriment of their children. Now listen, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I have some experiences in life. As a child, I hated the fact that my parents reminded me constantly that I was a child. And if my Sunday school teacher came up to my parents and said, listen, little Brandon, uh, you need to do something with him, then something got done. Now, they didn't do to me. My parents did. Now, I'll be honest with you. My dad didn't always circle back and inform the Sunday school teacher that something got done. Of course, I don't know he really had to because things changed. <laughs> we live in a society where all authority seemingly at the early levels of life is derided. There's no authority. There's no authority from God. There's no authority from the state. How dare the state tell me to do anything? Fear is part of what keeps a society civil. You want to see the fear of authority in action? Run down the roads this weekend at 90 mile an hour. I mean, this, is a, this probably is the worst weekend to ever do that. Why? Because they're the police officers. They're out. They are the ministers against evil. Well... That's something we do. We fear them. Notice the fourth one here. He says, honor. 
This is a unique one. In a grand sense, honor means money paid. It, it means a price, a value placed upon something. Here's an interesting question. We complain about taxes. I'm right there with you. I, I wish, in a real sense, the government could go on a fast. Or at least a limited tax consumption. I really, I really would like to see that in my lifetime. But here's the thing. What is your governmental country system worth to you? Now be careful. Because someone would say, <laughs> not a plug nickel. I don't need the government for anything. But history would prove that contextually untrue. That any peoples, unless you're going to be able to live in the North Pole by yourself, and listen, that's not the reality we live in. The fact is, people don't get along. The fact is, God's people don't always get along. The fact is, humanity, individuals, I'm speaking of me and you, are sinners. So by nature, we do what sinners do. We transgress the law of God. And if we'll transgress the law of God, we'll thieve, we'll lie, and given the right circumstances, murder would even occur. So without some form of government, you've got individuals acting in the greatest depravity of human nature, and it will flow out to an utter disdain and destruction of that civilization. Probably a great historical text for that would be none other than the French Revolution. There's a society that had no civil government to speak of. People roaming the streets. Mob rule is really what you had. And what's quite interesting during those times is sometimes the leader of one mob would be cast out and later be killed. I mean, he's just leading in the destruction of certain individuals only to upset the mob with no logic, reason, or rhyme, and they utterly was, were destroyed. This, this is the society we speak of of having a lack of government altogether. But these words that the Lord would speak, these words that the Spirit of God would move upon Peter and Paul to write about honor being due, were not put in place for Christians that lived in a quote-unquote Christian nation. But rather, they were to be seen as the base denominator of any Christian, and by that I mean a follower of Jesus Christ, in any land to which said believer would live. This was Jews that were taken to Israel. And to abide in Babylon, Jeremiah said that they were to seek the peace of the city. That's an interesting turn of a phrase, because Israel was taken captive by Babylon. Let me put it in 21st century vernacular. The Babylonians hated Israel. They would destroy the monuments and sought to undermine and eradicate the government of Israel off the face of the nation, off the face of the world. To those Jews that were brought captivity, they did everything they could to make them Babylonian, not Jewish. In so much keeping... The Hebrews would go unto Jeremiah just as the city walls were breaching, as it were. What should we do? Jeremiah said, seek the peace of the city. It's interesting. You'd have thought he'd have called them to the streets to picket, boycott, and burn down everything. 
These are not your allies, these are your enemies. It's not what he did. Why? Because the ultimate source is to see that God is sovereign and supreme. This is the same status by which we are to live in these days. No Jew was saved simply by dwelling in Israel. It required salvation, that is, a personal faith. So too, no American is saved simply because they live as an American or even gave their lives for America. Patriotism and salvation are completely different matters. Yet, the word in these texts does not say that one should love my country. Equally, it does not prohibit one from loving their country. Just the singular fact might remain that there is a distinction between rendering due and loving of. Yet I would find it personally in my heart so terribly difficult to say that I only want to render due of honor. I'd rather say that for me, I love this country. I don't love her foremost. For instance, I don't love her more than I love God. For God has expressly forbid that. That would be called idolatry. I don't love her as much as I do my wife and children. That would be insensible. You'd think I was an idiot. If given my choice to be an American and thereby have my wife and children, or to not be an American, or I got that a little mixed up, but you know what I'm saying. If it cost me, if I had to choose between my family and my country, I think I'd rather have my family. They are mine, the insensible. I don't love her as much as I would love the church of God. That would seem to me improper. For God is not the head of the government, but he is the head of the church. Given these choices as life, I don't think I would give up my freedom of assembly and my family, nor my God, just that I might have America. That being said, there are many things that I would readily give up in order that I might simply be called an American and reside within these fair borders. For instance, I'd give up all my money. I'd rather be broke and have the opportunity to live and be a citizen of the U.S. than any other country on the face of the earth. I think the poor are far better off in America than they are in any other country. In fact, I'd give up my house so that I could live in America. If you said that you could have your house but not have America, or you could have America and not have your house, I would rather be homeless and reside in America. In fact, I'll be quite honest with you, I'd rather be homeless in America than to have some homes in other countries. I think that's a fair thing to be said. I'd rather give up my health. In fact, I have personal testimony of this. If ever my life was in jeopardy and I had to be emergency uh, surgery and do of these things, I'd rather that happen in these fair shores. 
You can talk of all the medical difficulties that America has. You can talk about insurance. It's well said that America is the land of the free, but that's all. For there are no free things in America. You can speak of that if you want. But I know not a country with greater access to medical care than anywhere else on the face of the earth. These are some things I'd be willing to part with so that I singularly might be a citizen of America. You might ask the question, why? I think of a number of them. I would love this country because of the freedoms that she and almost she alone possesses. If you need no other reason to appreciate your country, appreciate how she weathered COVID-19. Regardless of your opinion on what happened or what didn't happen, take that aside for a moment. You find me a country that did a better job. Perhaps you'd rather be in China where they captured their people and imprisoned them and secluded them from their families. Maybe, maybe you'd rather be in Israel that forced vaccine after vaccine after vaccine after... I mean, you had no choice in the matter. Maybe you'd rather be in the UK where, where the entire society was under strict, aggressive lockdown, but the prime minister could dance around and drink around unabated. You'd rather be there? Maybe you'd rather be in Canada. No, I, I don't think that there's a country for all her faults that navigated the storm of COVID-19 better than this country. If there's one country that I want to be in, if there was a pandemic, I'm telling you it's this one. And the freedoms that she possessed are unparalleled. In fact, we're sitting right here criticizing our country a little bit. I think that goes to my point. I'll give you another one. I love her for the peace that she has seen in her time. I know we've been in and out of hot spots for its grandness. But some of you's lifetime, you could prove this to be a point. With the exception of terrorist activity, there's been no sovereign country to ever bomb these shores. But that cannot be said of London. That cannot be said of Paris. That cannot be said of Jerusalem or Beijing or Tokyo or Moscow or Leningrad. But it can of our country. That's an unparalleled piece on the scope of world history. Cannot be said of the Ukraine. Think of no other reason to love her than the fact that perhaps that my children and their children can grow up in a society where really they knew peace. And that's part of the problem with our society in one sense. There's so much peace in our society that young folks grow up with a lack of sense of duty that it is their requirement to uphold said peace. Well, I don't want to tread too deep in those waters, but I'll give you a third reason. I love her for the heritage she has afforded. As a general rule, no country has ever had so great wealth and so great international power and abused it as little as this country did. The reality is she was, if you're going to accuse her of being a colonizer, she would have to be the worst colonizer on the face or in the annals of his human history. Spain colonized the Philippines for the better part of a hundred years. And when defeated in the War of 1899, part of the settlement 
of the remuneration was that the colony of the Philippines and of Cuba were to revert to the U.S. Within a handful of years, you know what happened? They were independent nations. Really bad colonizers. It cannot be said world over. I love her for her statue of giving. And I'm not talking about two religious goods here. I do not think that there's a country the world over that has done as much to assist others as this country has. Let a tsunami strike. Let a terrible pestilence occur. And see if this country, regardless of political affiliation, doesn't reach down deep and send of her great resources around the world. To who is it those encroached by foreign powers do not have on speed dial to call to see if aid may be sent? The stature of giving. For the last 70 years, nearly alone, she has funded the greater defense of the North Atlantic countries. Milton Friedman, the famed economist, put it this way, if you really want to know how great America is, Take a poll of how people vote with their feet. She is the desire of the world. Not of the countries of the world, but the people of the world. It's unparalleled and you can prove it. There are not tens of thousands of people approaching the borders of every country on the face of the earth just to gain sanctuary, but there is and has been in this country Regardless of your opinion on it, it is the hearts of individuals. It's a general rule. Yet, despite all of these detailed reasons, we as a country are in a time of growing uneasiness. Even over the course the case of the last several weeks and court cases that have been fought, it's easy for our society to be divided over their emotions and feelings and facts. Yet a single reality must be remembered. And that is that this country, nor any that shall precede her or any that shall follow after her, can ever save souls from their greatest needs. I would postulate that there are perhaps more genuine Christians in Asia than there likely are in the U.S., but China and India and Pakistan are not able to save souls. And neither is America. And in some reality, that ought to itself be a great comfort to our hearts. Let me give you some reasons this morning that no country on the face of the earth has the ability to ultimately save souls. You're there in Romans. Look up in verse 13 or rather, chapter 13 and verse 1. Notice what he says here. Let every soul be subject, submissive, tasio, if you will, be subject unto the higher powers. Now note this phrase. For there is no power, but of what? God. You want to know reason the government can't save people? It's because of their rule. That is the source of their power to rule. 
makes a country a country? We talk about civil law or federal law or international law. Who gave the power for there to be a government that could make laws or annul laws? Who gave that? Where do they derive the authority to rule? I mean, it'd be a silly thing if you just went out to a vacant property and said, I now proclaim this the state of what you might call it. And uh, the only currency here is a uh, take five or, um, you know, the candy bar currency. You'd be a, who gave you the power to do that? Why is it that if you violate your country's laws, you're in, you're in jeopardy? Why is it you can go to prison? Who gave them the authority to exact that over you? Why isn't it? And not to get into a civics lessons, but this is why we are not a democracy. We are a republic under a single constitution. But who gave that government that authority? The answer is there in verse 13, for there is no power but of their authority, their power, if you will, is granted. You see, a government is given power, but they have not been given the power to save souls from destruction. That power is found only through Jesus Christ. That's why Peter in in Acts chapter 4 says, There is no name given among men whereby George Washington, all of the old, if you will, founders of this country, None of them had the ability to save souls. No more than current or past presidents do. Why? Because they didn't have the power to. There's some things your country just cannot do, and that happens to be one of them. I would say another to a far lesser degree is your country, regardless of where it may be, does not have the ability to eradicate poverty either. For surely our Savior did say this, the poor you have with you. Ain't going to change. Just have a different class of poor. Their purpose, or rather power, is granted. But as you move down through the 13th chapter, you'll come to this idea, and that is this, that that power that was given to them has understanding, detailed purpose. There's a purpose for government. Let me give you a few of them. Look at verse number 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, thou shalt have the praise of the same. What's the purpose? What's a government for? Well, according to Romans chapter 13, God gave the authority for governments... And one of the reasons that God gave the authority is to restrain evil. There needs to be a restrainer. Something, you know what it's holding back from, don't you? Men. Women, humanity. Why? They're under the curse of sin. And if there wasn't a restrainer, then they were going, you want to talk about corporate America? And the big businesses, if you will, and uh, I read uh, this article this week, the president's calling on 
uh, and he just kind of slightly misspoke, but he was calling on uh, gasoline companies, and immediately what might pop into your mind is the local gas dispensary. That's not what he was talking about. But he said they need to lower their cost revenues because after all, that's where all the money is. A quick, a quick cursory glance, tell you something. You know what your local Turkey Hill makes for every gallon of gas you pump out? I verify, I asked a fellow this back in 2012 when the gas was like 360. I asked him, I said, you on this station? He said, yes, I do. I said, if I come in here and fill up my car 20 gallons of gas, how much of that are you making? He said, about 20 cents. He said, I, I cannot stay in business off a fuel dispensary line. I make no money off of it. The reality is, you know how much Exxon Mobil makes? If your, if your gas is running about $4 a gallon, Exxon Mobil off of the dispensary of gas, you know how much they make off of that? Five cents a gallon. The real place they make is off of drilling the crude out, refining it and exporting it. That's where the real money is. And on a $3.75 gallon of gas, they'll make about $1.22, which is approximately the same profit ratio that Home Depot makes when they sell you a washer, about a 30% above cost profit, something like that. That's what, that's what their profit is. Of course, you could talk about government, 70 cents a gallon, but we'll leave that for another time. The reality is, you know what prevents businesses from going and drilling wherever they want to drill? The restrainer. You know what prevents people from ruining your yards and your lives and your possessions? The restrainer. Government has a defined purpose. I know that we don't like to hear this, but one of the things a government has to do is curtail and regulate actions. It has to do it. You could argue that it does little to no good, but the fact is someone has to do it and they're the ones. And sadly, the more depraved a society becomes, the more regulations they inherit and sadly, the more freedoms they lose. The less morality a society has, the less freedoms they have. God really only gave humanity two laws. And they found themselves wholly inadequate to do either of them. And as such inherited government upon government that builds law after law after law, to I doubt that this platform could hold every piece of paper of every law and, and, and rule that our governments have. Those two laws, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. And the second is likened to the first, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thy fails at them, enter in the need for a regulator. She's to restrain evil by pursuing justice. You know, I'm thankful we don't make much of this. I'm thankful when local, I'm, local magistrates, your county judges, that make so many decisions on a regular basis over justice, when's the last time we applauded them for getting that right? A second purpose, not only restraining evil, that you'll find in the 13th chapter in verses 3 and 4, 
He talks about this minister of God, this revenger of evil. I would submit to you that a second role of government is the protection of its populace. That means it's got to have a military. It's got to have a police force. Enemies within and without. There's an attitude there of support. He talks in verse 3 about you doing good. Thou shalt have the praise of the same. There's a level of encouragement for doing right. They're to pursue and to instruct and to make standards of wholesomeness in a society. All of that is in a level of protection. In verse number 4, he talks about a minister of God, the second of three times, a revenger to execute wrath on him that doeth evil. I'd say a third obligation is to him is given the responsibility to punish, punish evildoers. By the way, that was one of the initial charges given in the ninth chapter of Genesis. If any man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That's government's role. Government has to play a role in prisons and jurisprudence and jails. I'm not saying they always get it right, but that is their charge. That is their duty. They do so primarily by a few means. In grand, awful situations, they have capital punishment. To lesser extents, perhaps, they have long tenured incarceration in prisons. They have paroles, but that is part of the role of government. He is a revenger. All of that power was given to them by the Almighty God. But none of that power will save a soul from perdition. There's a second thing that we could mention. The second thing we could mention is this. They cannot save a soul from hell because not only of their rule, but because of their reign. Or rather, I should say their realm. Their realm. Their realm is earthly. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, Abraham said that he was looking for a city that hath foundation. At best, any government is temporally focused. Just talking about the here and now. It's interesting, over in Daniel, where we were this morning in the Sunday school, to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel had told him that this stone not cut with hands would descend and it would crush this image. And he says of this image, he said, He will establish a kingdom that will dwell forever and ever. You know, there is no civilization, no government that can say that it has been here forever and ever. Years ago, there was a commercial coming out. It was talking about, and I don't remember the commercial, what it was about. You might remember it, but it it just talked about uh, how long things last. It might have been a car commercial and that this particular car would last, you know, I don't know how many years. But they started off by talking about old things, and they were talking about China is 1,500 years, and England's 1,000 years old, and then they went down whatever the narrative is. Well, there has been people inhabiting China in some type of governmental system for 1,500 years. That is not to think that their current government has been around for 1,500 years. For the most of that tenure, there were multiple kingdoms within China, and the same is true of England. There's no current governmental system that can really trace its years back a thousand years. It's temporal. But their focus is always on the here and now. It's focused on their current gathering of wealth, 
on their safety of those dangers they see on the horizon, on their prestige, on how people might see them uh, across the scope of the society. And might I say, every nation has something with and without among itself to praise itself for its accomplishments. I believe it was 1984 or 1980. It was one of those two years. McDonald's, the largest restaurant in the world. Most successful one, arguably, in the world. I believe it was the 1980 Olympics. That was boycotted by the Soviet Union, I believe. 1980 Olympics, expecting a very rigorous toll in the late 70s, McDonald's came out and said, hey, for every, every day that we win a gold medal, McDonald's is going to give away food. That's what they said. Anybody in the U.S.? Well, it was late, but preceding the games, the Soviet blocs pulled out. And that year, America ran the table. It cost McDonald's millions of money. But what are they trying to do? Incentivize the American way, the prestige that would come upon this country. The realm is her personal advancement. Yes, sometimes escape of her land. You know what every country wants, really? More room. You can argue the morality of it, and there's a lot to argue there, but they seek to do so. Her realm is situated on her power and her freedoms. Ultimately, the realm of a country is concerned with earthly things. It is not terribly concerned with eternal life. You know, to a greater extent, a specific extent would be the United States, but a greater extent Western, the Western world. That is just an interesting thing, the Western world. Because unlike all that came before it, it took just a glimpse of a concern for the supernatural. That's why you go to these great capitals, and Washington would be like these, that they have references and Bible verses and stuff like that. There was a glimpse about a realm that was greater. A third reason that a government can't save you is because It's because of their pursuit of righteousness. Proverbs tells us that righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. An interesting look in the Old Testament, Israel, the covenant nation, is an interesting study. The overwhelming majority of her kings were unrighteous individuals. This would be true if we were to discover the scope of Roman history and some of the precedents that exist since. Great question could be asked about our current times and previous times, even in the last 40 or 50 years, would be how would God rate the majority of our political leaders if he was to consider, and he does, their character, their morality, their pursuits, and their justice. What would God think of them? Because that's what he based his good king on. Most often, in any civilization, including our own, Righteousness fails because God is ultimately not their God. It's an inexorable fact. A society is doomed when they leave any form of biblical righteousness and allow evil to become their truth. No wonder Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore as, one, as by one man sin into the world, And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. Why? For they have all sinned. No, no government can save you. 
because they just do not have enough righteousness. 2 Corinthians speaks of it on this wise, that he became sin for us, he that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not given to the government. Let me give a fourth thing. And this really summarizes the whole message. The government cannot save people. No government can save people because of their reign. The Gospel of Matthew in the 24th chapter, the Lord said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The psalmist penned on these things in the 12th Psalm that is preserved this from this time forward to every generation. The 40th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah, that great gospel writer of the Old Testament, penned in the 40th chapter, the grass withereth, the flower thereof fadeth away, but the word of our God endureth forever. Peter, a tag on these very same thoughts, recites it in his epistle, that he, his general epistle, that the Holy Spirit of God moved on him. On these very words, that cannot be seen of nations. Isaiah chapter 5, what a wonderful passage. We spoke on that, I think, this time last year. About hope, the governments and things of this nature. But in Isaiah chapter 5, there's a beautiful picture of the, the vineyard. And God said, I took of the choice vineyard and I planted it and I put a watchtower on it and I, I protected it and I built up walls he uses this question, and you know you're in you're, you know you're in a sad place when the authority questions you. God said, "What more could I do? What more could I do? You've turned from me." He said, "So I'll break down the walls. I'll tear up the vineyard that I've planted." In the closing verses of chapter five it'll send a chill through you. He says in verse 25, I will lift up an ensign from the nations. And using that expression, he said, I will call it, calls it, I think the word is to roar over. You know what he's saying? I'm going to scratch out something. And I'm going to allow them to develop a nation for the express purpose of accomplishing my will which will be the utter destruction of this choice vineyard I've made. That ought to be a scary thing. Because when you put that as a crossroads, a lens over Daniel and the image of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that is exactly God's plan. There would be that head of gold, that same that Isaiah prophesied of. And he would come like a roaring prince against Jerusalem and would destroy her, devastate her. And just as she reached her zenith, God would send yet another judgment. Isaiah prophesied of this 150 years before Cyrus was to come. He says, "In Cyrus, my servant, long before Cyrus was ever known to his mother, God knew and sovereignly intended it for the purpose of destruction for those that rebelled. And then there would be another one to follow Cyrus and another to follow Alexander. And looking forward, there will yet be another king that will come that son of perdition, who will judge the nations. But finally, there'll be a final king. And he'll take with all of that power, listen to me carefully, and he's going to take it back. No longer will there be Babylonian governments. No longer will there be Assyrian governments. 
No longer will there be Persian governments. No longer will there be Grecian or Roman or Antichrist governments. There'll be one. And of his kingdom, Daniel said, there'd be no end. But that king that sits upon that throne will be different than any king or president or czar that's ever led any country over the course of humanity for he he alone will have the power to save. The establishment of that country, he said, listen, there'll be no need of the sun. No need of welfare. There'll be no need of military might. For he says, all power is given unto me. He will be the king that will also be the most high God. The only government that will be able to save and sustain and secure his citizens from that day forward forevermore. It's God that raises up the standards as a flag, you know, the ensigns. It's God that setteth them down. No nation, not even Israel, has existed continually. They have peaks and declines. Once this land, vast as it was, I speak of the Western Hemisphere, was ruled by mighty Incas and Tupi and Aztecs and Mayan nations. They are no more. The sad truth of history is it one day will repeat itself. It's hard for me to imagine, but historically it's hard to ignore. No kingdom will reign forever. The longevity, the prosperity of a kingdom historically correlates with her inherent goodness. The prosperity and longevity of, her, of a kingdom correlates to her morality. These things must be in the forefront of our minds as children of God. For God is greater than our country. And only when our country or any others, and particularly we're not talking about the abstract, we're talking about the individuals, it's people. Only when they know and worship the God of heaven will they ultimately prosper and be blessed. For salvation is only Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.